Uh, one of the things that we got really used to when we lived out west at Mungandai was driving. That is simply because uh, when you're living out in the middle of nowhere, uh, you need to be comfortable with spending time on the road because with shops being over an hour away, you'll get really hungry if you don't. Uh, but the road is a very dangerous place. Uh, we know that all too well here in Gaira because sometimes it feels like in winter, every second week the highway is closed because it's frozen at Black Mountain. Uh, we know that because we see the road closed outside the church here uh, every second week. Uh, the open road is a dangerous place, which is why there are rules for how you use it. Uh, we have speed limits. Though even in places where there are no speed limits, there are still rules. There are still safety features. And with this, I'm talking about lane markings. Because as you drive along the road, there's two main ways that you can orientate yourself with the road. You can align yourself with the centre lane marking, which will guide your course, and then the outside lane markings, which will guide the bounds of your trip, keeping you safe from a head-on collision or a collision with a tree. That's the first way that you can drive. The alternative way to drive is where you disregard those lane markings and just drive the way that you want. Now, you know what I'm talking about, don't you? Because you know those people. We see those people on the highway all the time, don't we? They're annoying. Uh, on a trip to Sydney, I often find myself feeling so unsafe because they're tailgating me and weaving all around the place that I usually just pull over and let them go past me. But apart from how I feel, that way of driving is no way of driving at all, is it? And so if you take a drive out to Ebor, you will often see the cars of these people wrapped around trees, won't you? Proving that freedom from the rules is not really freedom at all, is it? And just as disregarding the safety features on the, way, on the road is no way to drive... We're going to see very similarly that living your life while having your back turned on God is no way to live. As we see that the best of this life and the next life can only be found when you orientate your life around him. Just like we orientate our driving along that centre lane marking, hoping that we will get to our destination. So let's have a look at Matthew chapter 3 and see what it has to teach us as we continue to look at the first four chapters of Matthew as he introduces us to the king that God sent into the world. And we begin the chapter in verse 1 where we read that in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Right at the beginning of our chapter for today, Matthew is telling us that around 30 years has passed since the events of chapter 2, where Jesus and the family had fled the murderous Herod and then settled in the scummy small town of Nazareth. That's what we learnt last week, wasn't it? Which means that at the beginning of this chapter, Matthew is also hinting that the activity of this saving king that he has told us about well, his activity is about to begin. 
And so just as Matthew has been concerned with showing us the apocalyptic nature of this event and this coming king and how every single detail of the story has been spoken about and planned by God in the past, just as Matthew has been concerned with showing us the apocalyptic nature of this event, we see the exact same thing taking place as we are introduced to John the Baptist. John was Jesus' cousin. You can read about him in the beginning of Luke's Gospel. Though more importantly, John was the fulfilment of a bunch of other promises that God made in the Old Testament. We find one of them in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, where we are told about a man who would appear before the Messiah to prepare, quite literally, a highway to prepare the way for the ministry of God's saving king. Then in our Old Testament reading from Malachi 4, we are told that someone like the prophet Elijah would be the one who would come. So there's two promises. Someone would come and then he would be like Elijah. And then if we look at what Elijah was like, we read this in 2 Kings chapter 1, verse 8. He had a garment of hair and had a leather belt around his waist. That's what Elijah looked like in the book of 2 Kings. Well, with all the prophetic expectation, we see in Matthew that John and Elijah, well, they're dead ringers for each other, aren't they? They're the spitting image of each other, showing us that as far as Matthew is concerned, John was the new Elijah who was preparing the way for the ministry of God's saving king. Just like Elijah's job, John's job was to prepare the people to meet their God the servant of the Lord who would bring forgiveness for sins. Which means that while it would be fun to continue to reflect on John's poor clothing choices and his poor food choices and the, uh, the two choices of uh, these two men, we actually need to hear the message that John brought to the people because that is far more important. Which we pick up on in verse 2. Because John was declaring a message that is just as important today as it was back then. And this is what it was. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. That's what John appeared preaching. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. And in this, he was picking up on two important themes that come up in places like the Old Testament book of Daniel, that concerned the coming kingdom of God. And just like back then, it's important for us to hear as we exist in 2022, that in a world filled with kingdoms and in a world that is concerned with power and influence, that we hear about what God's people should hope for while we live here on earth, the coming of his kingdom. Daniel, 20, uh, Daniel 2, verse 44, tells us that in the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to other people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. Uh, in Daniel, we're told about the coming kingdom of God, And in John's preaching, we hear that the kingdom that Daniel spoke of 
was arriving. It would be a kingdom that would trump all other kingdoms. It would be a kingdom that would spell the end for unjust and ungodly power. Where those kingdoms come and go, this kingdom that God was establishing would last forever. It would be a universal kingdom as well, accepting Jews and Gentiles, all kinds of people. And just as God's coming kingdom would last forever, we hear in Daniel 7.14 about the king that this kingdom would be given to. He says, He was given authority, glory and sovereign power. All the nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. These two promises in the past help us understand what John had come to do. He appeared in the wilderness wearing all sorts of funny clothes and preached to the people saying essentially this, the everlasting kingdom and the everlasting king have arrived. The time has come. You need to get your affairs in order. You need to repent and turn back to God if you are going to benefit from what God is doing. And just like back then, the same is true today, because in order to be prepared for the coming kingdom, you need to have your life orientated around the heavenly king. God the Father is the centre lane marking of the road in our lives, and you can only reach the destination if you repent, turn and follow him. That's what John is telling the people. Well, thankfully, it seems that John's message got some traction because we're told that unlike me, his preaching was instantly effective. A verse five tells us that upon hearing the message to turn back to God, a verse five tells us that people went out to him from Jerusalem and all Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. They were baptized by him in the Jordan River. What we see here is that upon hearing the warning to change their posture towards the king of the coming kingdom, the people realise what all of us should realise when we compare ourselves to God, that we are sinful and in need of help. And so as a part of their repenting and turning back to God, they understand the influence of sin in their lives and they confess it. Though there's something else going on here too. Because the location that John was baptising people was where Israel had entered the promised land after the exodus and their wandering through the wilderness for all those years. And so as we think about the posture of the people on that day, the baptising in the Jordan River is significant because on that day, people were turning around and they were facing God again. And just as Israel had entered the promised land, all the people came to John and turned to God, confessing their sin, and they were entering God's promises for the coming kingdom that the prophet Daniel had spoken about. Which is a helpful moment for us to examine ourselves. What is your posture towards God? What is it? What is it really? Is he the road marker that you follow? As you travel through life? Or are you trying to make it up on your own? 
thinking that you can determine your own pathway to heaven. Well, friends, the Bible makes it very clear that doing life like that, the second way, does not lead to a successful journey. That's the reality. And we pick that up as we continue in verses 7 to 12. As we meet a group of people who were in that category, who had functionally turned their backs on God, and in doing so, they were risking missing out on the everlasting kingdom. Because these people, what they had done was they had completely lost sight of the king who would get them to the kingdom. They were trying to get there on their own. And so they are a picture of what rejecting the king looks like. Because in verses 7 to 12, Matthew tells us that two groups of religious leaders were present at the Jordan River. They were called the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which is important because in theological terms, these two groups did not get along with each other at all. Though John tells us that they had one thing in common. They both developed their own systems for how they were going to get to heaven and in doing so, they had lost sight of what would actually bring them salvation. Because as you read the Gospels, it becomes pretty clear that these two groups seem to be trusting in two things for their deliverance. Uh, Firstly was their religious pedigree. According to them, they did the right stuff and they were from the right group. Secondly, they were from the right family. John anticipates this and says to them that doing what they always do, tracing their roots back to Abraham, was completely meaningless unless there was actually heartfelt repentance and turning to God on their part. And so instead of relying on their religion and their heritage, John encourages them in verse 8 to actually produce fruit in keeping with repentance. Don't keep relying on what you've done. He encourages them to throw off everything that makes them feel important and accepted by God because in the end, it is all completely worthless. And that is simply because sin is the great leveller among us humans. Because we all sin and have fallen short of the glory of God. The challenge, therefore, is present for us too. If you think that maybe your farm or your wealth or your status in the community, or even worse than that, your own secret self-righteousness or putting yourself above others is impressive to God, then you need to get rid of it. You have to get rid of it. Because it's only by having an active trust in Jesus' death on the cross for you that can make you acceptable to God. But anticipating that they would simply keep running their own course, John warns them firstly in verse 10 that judgment is coming. He says, the axe has been laid to the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. You see, they considered themselves to be pillars of the church, God's people in Israel. Well, as these strong pillars which John kind of reimagines as a tree, what does he say? Well, your self-righteousness is about to be cut down. That's how worthless it is. 
And then in verse 12, he warns us that the just judge of the world has come. And that just as the analogy of uh, wood there, it's cold at the moment, so we've got lots of firewood. This is what the judge of the world has come to do. He would clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. John's message to us and to them is this. The kingdom is at hand. Judgment is coming. The time to repent and turn to God has come. Which is important because as the chapter closes, we finally meet after three, year, three, years, three weeks in Matthew's gospel, we finally meet the king that God has sent to offer forgiveness to the world. And so in verse 13, we see Jesus emerge from his hiding place in Nazareth that we left him last week to come and be baptised by John. We see a funny interplay between them as John refuses to baptise Jesus, but Jesus insists uh, and John relents. There's a lot that could be said about this final section, uh, but I want us to notice what it says about repentance. Uh, It's easy to misunderstand what repentance is, uh, probably because most of the time, Uh, we tend to speak of repentance as if it's only concerned with repentance from sin. Uh, Repenting is certainly concerned with repenting of sin, though the sin is only a part of repentance. Uh, Though in Matthew 3, we need to notice that what repentance means is that John is calling people to turn back to God. We don't present ourselves perfect to God, do we? We turn back to him, we receive his spirit, which then helps us get our life in a little bit more order than it was before. But we never deal with sin, do we, until we reach heaven. And so John appeared and he called people back to God. And this is for a very good reason, because in the context of John, for an Israelite, repentance had all the connotations of returning to their beginnings. Uh, In the front of their minds, because of where all of this was taking place, would have been a time when God had brought them out of Egypt and into the promised land, which was a time of a huge new beginning, wasn't it? And so when Jesus received John's baptism, it was not that Jesus had sins to turn from, Instead, he was publicly turning towards God the Father at the beginning of his ministry. Jesus was Jewish and therefore he just acts like a faithful Israelite, doing what they're supposed to do. And in doing so, what he does is he gives us a model for what it looks like to be one of God's people. Because if we are to experience his heavenly kingdom that will come as a result of his earthly ministry, then we need to live our lives orientated around and towards the king that was sent to save us. We don't run from him trying to find meaning on our own terms. We run to him because Jesus has already done everything for us. But in coming back to the story, we then see what happened after Jesus is baptised. 
Because as Jesus emerges from the water, it would have been some scene, don't you think? The heavens are opened. Then just like the dove appeared to Noah during the flood in Genesis 8, signaling a new beginning for the world, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus to equip him to be the servant of the Lord, ushering in God's permanent new beginning for the world. And then to confirm his divine identity, a voice from heaven declared this. This is my son, whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. Here we see, just as we've seen in previous weeks, uh, the developing explanation in Matthew's gospel about the origin of Jesus the Messiah showing us that just as he came from the lineage of God's promises in chapter 1, just as all of the events of his early life were predicted by God in the prophets, here we see again that Jesus is not just some other man claiming to have access to God's kingdom. Instead, he is the promised saving king who we have learnt this week is also God's son. All of this means that as the Old Testament prophecies, and as John has told us today, we need to continually look back to God. A hearing that Jesus is God's son means that if you want to get in to the kingdom, then he is the one that you need to trust above everything else, especially more than yourself. You know, I've always found that I'm pretty good at driving. Uh, All those years out west uh, taught me how to dodge all kinds of animals. And for the ones that I missed, my bull bar did the trick. Though the reality is, is that as comfortable as I am with driving, the road is still a dangerous place, isn't it? And an overconfidence of my ability can so easily end in disaster. Meaning that despite all confidence... I still need to follow the rules. I still need to take breaks. Well, friends, the same is true in the Christian life. Because no amount of success or confidence can replace the requirement of having a simple depending trust on Jesus and all that he has done for us. And so what we've learned in Matthew chapter 3 is that the life best lived is not one that tries to follow my own path or my own rules, trying to make myself look impressive to God, but instead we ought to follow him and live the way that he wants. Friends, the reality is for us, and I think actually Mark's gospel puts this scene a little bit better because he says this, the kingdom and the king have come near, so repent And believe the good news. I'm going to pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. And we thank you for your son, the saving king who came to die for us. We thank you as we've learned in previous weeks that his genealogy was planned by you. That also the events of his early life were planned by you. We thank you that he is not a mistake, but he is your son who came to save the lost. Father, pray, we pray for ourselves 
uh, that we might take to heart the news that the kingdom and the king have come near to us, that in response we may repent and believe this good news and live with him, guiding the events of our life every day. Amen.